HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I'm here with Josh Wesson. Josh, I've known for many years now. Um, I remember the first time he came into Del Anima, and I was uh, in a little bit of star shock. It was, uh, it was pretty awesome. Someone I've looked up to in the industry for, for quite a while. Um, I'm taller than you, that's why. <laughs> Maybe, uh, maybe just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, Josh, uh, over the years, has, has become a, a good friend. But uh, before, before his uh, time uh, coming into Del Anima, he accomplished quite a bit. <laughs> um, had been uh, a, a sommelier, an assistant sommelier uh, at the Quilted Giraffe, great restaurant, one of the really game-changing new American restaurants here in New York City. Um, had gone on to run uh, run a wine program and uh, won all sorts of awards, uh, best sommelier in, in America. Went on to travel and, and do wine competitions, um, and then eventually ended up opening up uh, a real game changing uh, retail store called Best Sellers, um, which he successfully ran for many years before cashing out. And so now, I can only assume Josh just sits on the beach and sips some fine wine and. It's, it's true. I, I've, I've been cultivating a, uh, a tan for some, some years now. No, uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I it's I, true. Look I, at I, me. Look how white I am. <laughs> You're so white. Uh, but, I, you know, any, any uh, uh, wine and food event around, and I'm like, I look at the town and for, for sure you're the most highly sought after wine speaking talent at, at this point Ooh, as you uh, at every I, event. I mean, I, look, I, I, I love to talk. I love to talk about wine and food like you. I'm completely devoted to uh, getting people excited about what they eat and drink and leading them to the promised land of deliciousness. You know, we're, we're sort of twins separated at birth by a number of years, <laughs> although you're the better looking twin. Um, 
You're, you're the funnier and smarter. Yeah, well, okay, together we're like the comedy <laughs> comedy team of Chip and Dale. Um, you know what we, we we don't you know come down from the Temple Mount holding you know the, these these keys these 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 commandments that that tell people what to drink, what to eat, how to live their lives, how to get pleasure out of uh, being at the table. We we just try to give people the tools to make those decisions for themselves and in the same time I- expand their universe of experiences and and it's been a, you know a lifelong pursuit for me and it's never over you know one of the great things i'm sure you feel the same way i do there are no wine experts and there are wine and food experts because the journey never ends and even though i'm not working in restaurants anymore i'm still completely and utterly devoted to taking people you know beyond their their comfort zone and, and giving them experiences that hopefully will uh, be be long lasting and rewarding and I- informing of, of things that, that they'll eat and drink f- long after they ever hang out with me. You know? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I find that every time I, I learn more, it, it makes me realize how little it is I know. Like, oh wow, that is a whole field of wines I had no idea about. That's a whole field of study or part of viticulture. I had absolutely no idea. I remember when I, I learned about how great the wines in the Canary Islands could be. And I was like, these are some just world-class, thrilling wines. And I didn't even know they existed. I didn't, I didn't know there were wines being made here at all. What What are some of your recent discoveries that you're really excited about? Well, you about? talk about Canary Islands. You go to wacky islands that look like the moon, and you, you suddenly discover that there are wines being made there. And not just wines for the sake of novelty, but these wines are compelling and interesting and have histories that need to be understood and, 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 and absorbed and then retold because these wines aren't like other wines. And in... I just came back from the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, had a fantastic time there, did a number of seminars with some great chefs. I worked with uh, Hetty Goldsmith, who is the uh, the executive pastry chef for Michael's Genuine, you know, probably the greatest uh, restaurants in Miami. And there Anytime great- I'm in Miami, I go to Michael's Genuine. Great wine list, just great, fun, upbeat vibe, and they have heirloom tomatoes in February. <laughs> well, <laughs> you go to that. Homestead and you just you don't want to leave. It's incredible. So, you know, Hetty's this wonderful, out-of-the-box thinking pastry chef, and she did some meat candy, which I thought was brilliant, by, by, by actually candying uh, slices of artisanal bacon. And, you know, I, it challenged me to, to, to pair wines with all of these, you know, delicious things that were, were kind of crazy. She did a version, an artisanal version of a Snickers bar, and I paired it with a Lustau uh, PX Sherry, and it blew people's minds. It blew my mind, because it's very hard when you have something that's that sweet and that intense and peanutty and caramelly and salty, you know, just to find a wine that can stand up to the assault of all those things. And it really was, you know, palate opening and mind opening for all the people that were tasting uh, uh, the wines and the desserts. But, you know, probably the, the match of the day uh, was uh, uh, a Madeira. You know, talking about wines mm-hmm. that come from forgotten islands. These wines were used to toast, you know, the the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This was Jefferson's favorite wine. It was the dominant wine of that time. And, uh, and the oldest have, wine that we serve at the restaurants is Madeira, without yeah, a doubt. Yeah. You know, but when you when you taste, I, I particularly like uh, Momsy Madeiras because I like the the sweeter side of the the spectrum of Madeira. And it, 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 she made a chocolate cake that had three different elements in it that were sort of sweet and savory. There were there was a curry in there. There were elements of shallots. There was some cumin and hot spice, and it, it was just crazy savory sweet. And this Madeira that we had, it was just a, you know a, a, a simple uh, a sandaman, uh, uh, rich was just you know just mind bending, incredible, phenomenal. 
So you are, as as I guess everyone can tell, it without a doubt an expert in uh, at least, if not at least in food and wine pairing. You're the, the person that that I look look to. Um, you've written about it. You've been quoted many times. You do a ton of events on it. The one food and wine pairing that I have such a hard time with, and and you've been hitting on it with with your seminar here, and I, I'd love to hear more uh, about it. Is is pairing with uh, with sweets? Just pairing with with desserts. Um, I I personally, I guess that the the common thinking is to, that you want to pair something that's a little bit a little bit richer, a little bit sweeter than the dessert itself, so it doesn't make the wine seem you know uh, flabby or or or, or you know, it doesn't lose the wine but i tend to not like such sweet things in general what's what's your thought process when you're pairing a wine a sweet wine with a dessert well you mentioned the received wisdom the received wisdom is that when you have sweet foods you need to find some equivalent level of sweetness in the wine because it's counterintuitive, but when you have sweetness in food and sweetness in wine, they're subtractive. They don't add together to be more sweet on the palate. They actually cancel one another out. Mm-hmm. And if you have a wine that just has a kiss of sweetness and a food that's much sweeter than the wine, you can diminish the sweetness to the point where you crush the fruit in the wine and then you focus on other elements in there, whether it's the acid or the tannin or the uh, alcohol, and it sort of warps and woofs the balance into something that's not particularly tasty. But I don't like to get too heavy-handed the way, uh, you know, you're just mentioning avoiding, you know, these these giant flavors like sumos battling, uh, you know, for your palate's, uh, 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 you know, possession. I, I like to, to work with desserts that are either outrageously sweet with wines that are outrageously sweet, like the PX Sherry and the Snickers Bar, or back off and go into the world of savory sweet desserts, which I think are much more interesting than full, fully blown, ridiculously sweet desserts, because you're right. Once you get into that level of sweetness, your hands are tied a bit when it comes to pairing with wine. But if you're talking about sweet, savory foods, you've got a whole opportunity to pair wines and foods together that you know, it's almost limitless. And you know, riffing on that, going beyond desserts and dessert wine, I love savory foods that have elements of sweetness, whether it's barbecue sauce going on top of, you know, some ribs or uh, even artisanal ketchup on a burger. I mean, there's so many different things that we eat in the course of an everyday, you know, set of dining experiences that are sweet and savory at the same time. And those pose challenges that you and I love to take on. Love that. And and then when you see that kind of challenge in in a, a more savory food, what what are you immediately thinking? How do you how do you tackle uh, a burger with a sweet acidic homemade ketchup? Well, I, you know, I've lately been on a kick. I just came back from Paris, and you know, if you go around to all of these new bistros in Paris or hipster wine bars, and by the way, Paris now looks for the most part like like Bushwick. <laughs> it's exactly like Brooklyn. You go to the 11th arrondissement, the 10th, the 4th, you're in the Marais. You'd swear that you're, just, you're synapsing right to Brooklyn. They're kind of catching up to us in an interesting way. But natural wines are very big there. And a whole raft of Petillon wines that come from places like, you know, the Savoie, Jura, uh, the Loire, wines that are just a little bit fizzy, but, you know, naturally so. And I'm crazy for slightly fizzy wines. I'm crazy for Lambruscos. I mean, I, I just, whether they're uh, Amabile or, uh, you know, full-blown Dolce or just, you know, Secco, I think these are the universal antidotes to all sorts of foods. I and mean, if I was shipwrecked on a desert island 
and I could only have one bottle float up on shore, it would be a sparkling red wine with a kiss of sweetness. I think that goes with everything. Yes, I totally agree. I, I think that uh, a lot of times those wines represent excellent value as well. Uh, and that, and you find a lot of those more natural producers leaning on, on those kind of wines because um, a lot of times these Petillant Naturel wines, you don't have to add another uh, another dose of yeast to it. You're, you're doing one fermentation and just capturing the, the natural bubbly essence from that first fermentation. And uh, I find that a lot of natural winemakers are doing that. And then, yeah, and from these off-the-beaten-path kind of areas with cool grapes that you don't see, they're, they're just thrilling and just utterly drinkable wines. You could just quaff them back. You're crazy. You know, I mean, people talk about session beers, you know, beers that you can sit and drink the entire day. But these are wines that are, for the most part, fairly modest in alcohol, and they don't bang you over the head with acidity or sweetness or tannin or anything. They're just beautifully balanced, easy drinking. You could serve these to lunching orthodontists. <laughs> they, they wouldn't mess up their afternoon cases. I mean, it's just, these wines are great. You know, hook them up as, with an IV drip if you can't sleep. They'll put, it's better than an Ambien. You know, they're, they're just, they're ridiculously good. And I'm sure that you serve a bunch, I mean, I've had all sorts of really interesting, uh, slightly effervescent wines in your restaurants. You're crazy for them, too. We have, uh, by the glass of La Pizza, we have the Camillo Donati Malvasia, uh, which is both an orange wine, so they do a skin maceration uh, before... Uh, uh, the fermentation is complete, and it's a Petillant Natural and unfiltered. So that is like that is, I think, would probably fit well into that Paris It's like you check it's like yeah. E, all of the above, <laughs> A, B, C, D, E. Now I would tell you, I am not a huge fan of oxidized white wines. Mm-hmm. Not in the, I mean, I, I admire some of them. Some of them are super funky. Uh, I, you know, it's an acquired taste for sure. But that was one thing that I noticed when I was in Paris that I thought they were pushing the envelope a little bit too far and then licking. You know, it's just you know. I, you can't get dogmatic about anything in wine. You can't hook, you know, your 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 wagon to a train that won't let you, you know, jump tracks and go into other directions. And I think if you believe that orange wines are, you know, the next big thing, and 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 and, and that's the way you want to take people, you know, you you're gonna you know take people in in a couple of directions they probably don't want to go. What do you think about orange wines? I mean, you tell me, yellow, orange, blue, green. No, I mean I'm. I- uh, very excited about orange wines and uh, our first, first first wine list that uh, I wrote at Del Anima, we had them by the glass. We've had them by the glass ever since at, at all of the restaurants. But at the end of the day, there there are just as many orange wines that I that I think are terribly faulty and just not not ex- interesting or exciting as I do that I think that are that are thrilling. Um, so it, it still has to be a really well made really good wine and I think when you when you make wine in that style it really shows any of your flaws in the vineyard in in winemaking because you're not you're not hiding anything you know uh, when when you make white wine the the skins are, are not as important as as for red wine so if, if you have some moldy fruit you take it off the skins and you have the juice and it's it's generally not as much of a problem but when you're doing orange wine and you're using the skin you really have to have like perfectly, perfectly healthy fruit, and you have to have really great vineyard practices, and you have to have a really healthy yeast population so that you can finish that fermentation. Um, otherwise, your your wines just just become off and, and faulty, and and I do think that a lot of people. The other thing you know, what the other thing about orange wines is that it, since it is trendy, a lot of people are 
experimenting with them and then releasing experiments before they have many years to to perfect it. Um, so if you're not one of the greatest practitioners and you're just trying out something new, it's not going to be it's not going to be an exciting wine. It's not going to be as great as you know someone who's been making wine in the Mosul for seven generations. Right. You know, sometimes you got to go with history, and you know, I've been going with history lately. You know, it's funny how things that you uh, you fell in love with when you first came to wine can be forgotten in the wake of uh, the next big thing or the next little thing or the next area that you've discovered that you didn't know about before. I started out, I fell in love with wine because of Beaujolais. And now I've come back to Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais. I think the greatest values in the wine world are coming out of Beaujolais. And, and it, it, I was with Daniel Jonas for, for one night in Paris. He was coming up from uh, Bordeaux, and he, he said the, he needed to have an antidote to drinking all of this Cabernet and Merlot. So we were in this little bistro. We had uh, uh, some, some Cru Beaujolais. It's a bunch of different bottles on the table. And, you know, it's just it's insane. artisanal Cru Beaujolais that's not, you know, carbonically macerated, real deal. You can get the, the best versions of those wines in a store for 25 or $30, on a wine list in a restaurant for $50. And it's the best expression of that kind of wine. And these wines are gymnastically flexible with food. They're so bendy, they go with everything. I mean, I'm crazy for this stuff. And these wines have so much in common with, with Burgundy, which is just far up north, the, the, the elegance and the nuance and the complexity. Um, but at, yeah, at, at a third of the price. I think that I, I personally drink a ton of Cru Beaujolais. It's what I have in, in my cellar. And uh, it, it's some of the, I always want to drink Burgundy, but can't, you know, can't generally afford it. So, but Beaujolais, you can open up. And again, like the best, just the absolute best, best version of it any night of the week and not feel not feel too bad about that. Yeah, and you know, it's it's fairly simple to master. There's only 10, you know, uh, crews that you need to figure out and then a bunch of producers and you know, and you, it's not like uh, Burgundy which demands fealty and you know, obeisance and and study and cap off and you still don't get it right. I still I still don't understand Burgundy. You know, no matter how much I try, I can't. I I, I get rewarded and spanked in the same session, you know, which is not bad. You know, who doesn't like to give rewarded and spank the same thing? <laughs> but, but, you know, getting back to Beaujolais, it's like Gamay. Plus, I just love Gamay. And I, last night, I can't remember the name of the producer, but somebody threw a bottle from the Cote Rouennaise. It's kind of, they consider it the Loire, but it's in the central massif right mm-hmm. in the middle of France. You know, you, people forget that the Loire starts in the middle of France and then goes north and then uh, west and then dumps out into the Atlantic. But this was just, you know, a crazy, delicious you know, it, it sort of had one foot in the Rhone and one foot in the Loire by way of of, of of Beaujolais, but it wasn't Beaujolais. I mean, phew, fantastic. And I'm I'm a total freak for taking these wines, and you've got to chill these wines. You know, I, when I was down in Florida for South Beach, it was a revelation to people who live in Miami that you should chill red wines below room temperature. And the rooms down there were like 72 to 80 degrees. People were spontaneously combusting. They have a glass of you know some massive red. They go outside in the sun, they explode in flames. It's just it's terrible. So what what you know? Of course, room temperature before centrally heated rooms. You know, you're talking about 55, 60 degrees. Nothing tastes good at ambient 72. Not Yoo-Hoo, Orange Knee-High, Diet Dr. Pepper, Frappuccinos, Cappuccinos. Nothing tastes good at that temperature. You know, you either got to go above or below. And now that this, even this coffee, this coffee is good, by the way. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you, Roberta. I'm getting getting hopped up. I'm getting pistol whipped on this stuff. (laughs) 
I could use a glass of Gamay right now, just like they do. You know, the first time I went to Lyon, mm-hmm. you see all the taxi drivers. They're up at the bars. You know, they're, they're having their little cup of coffee, their little, uh, you know, demitasse. And, and then they're drinking a little pot of, of Beaujolais. <laughs> Just insane. And when you chill it, it has that same kind of quaffable, sessionable aspect that those <laughs> those delicious sparkling wines do. You can you can just knock back. I, 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 that that is actually. I just got very nervous that they're going to go back in the car and drive. <laughs> one foot on the gas, one foot on the oh, brakes. Geez. You know, it's just. What can I tell All right, you? We're going to take just a quick break, um, and then we'll be back shortly with Joshua Wesson. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. And we're back on In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm here with Josh Wesson, and we're just talking about some of Josh's favorite discoveries and uh, rediscoveries of Beaujolais, but I want to change gears just a little bit and go back to uh, the time when you, when you first started working in restaurants, um, and you got your first sommelier job, can you tell us a little bit about how that, how that all happened? Well, my first SOM job wasn't even, it wasn't a, a full on SOM job because there, there weren't SOMs back then. I mean, this is Roger de Gorn era when there were three sommeliers in New York city. And before that, I got my start in the serious restaurant business, uh, at a restaurant called Panache in Boston. It was uh, on Main Street in the shadow of MIT next to Joyce Chen's. And this was when Nouvelle Cuisine was just breaking over the shores of the United States in the late 70s, early 80s. And I got the job there because the, I told the chef, Bruce Frankel, that I could install his toilets. 
he was building out this little tiny 32-seat storefront restaurant. He had done a stage in La Meloise in Chagny. He had gone to Cordon Bleu in Paris with his girlfriend, and they were really enthused about doing Nouvelle Cuisine food in Boston, where there were no examples really at that time. And uh, I bought a Time Life book on plumbing. I put in his uh, his bathroom. <laughs> I helped him stucco the walls. We illegally wired the place. And we opened up this restaurant. There were five of us. And it was open for dinner six nights a week, Monday through Saturday, and then brunch on Sunday. So it was this one dysfunctional, happy family. We were working seven days a week, 50 weeks a year. And for the first six months while we were waiting for the, the wine license to come in in Cambridge, people would, it was a BYO. And it was Julia Child's favorite restaurant. She would come and dine there once a week with Paul, her husband. And she would bring in the you know, most wonderful wines. And everybody would leave the wines. When you go to a BYO, usually you bring more than you need. And you just drink it. You leave whatever's left there for the, the staff. That's where I learned about wine. And when we finally got our, our wine license, I put a really fantastic little list together of 30 bottles. It's very hard to do a 30-bottle list. I don't care what kind of food you're, you're, you're crafting a list for because it's just the old uh, saw. It's hard to write a, a short story, much easier to write a long one, hard to write a short letter. You know, you've got to edit. You've got to, you've got to really think about what's necessary and what's not. And, uh, and, and, and this restaurant at Panache changed all the time. The chef was constantly embracing different aspects of Nouvelle Cuisine because it was really just exploding at the time. It hadn't defined itself. And for me, every month was like working in a different restaurant. I learned about matching wine and food on the front lines by, by experientially playing with things, by, by trial and error. I didn't have a group of people to work with. I didn't have a school that I could study at. I didn't have a degree program that I could take. None of that existed. I'm talking about 1979, 1980. And then I went off to uh, study public health. Uh, and uh, and shrink livers for a living instead of enlarge them. And I saw the light after that, quickly gave that up, came down to New York, fell in with uh, the folks at the Quilted Giraffe, and uh, Bill Guilfoyle took me under his wing. He was the psalm there, one of the three or four working psalms in New York. And, um, you know, and, and the rest, as they say, is uh, grape-stained history. And when, when do you see uh, the change to having three or four psalms in New York to... Today, where there's uh, this Somali culture, there's tons of Somalis. What do you think were some of the factors that led to to that change, and uh, how do you see that happening? Well, I think, you know, part of it has to do with the the, the rise of uh, training programs, of being able to, you know, have a form of uh, uh, certification for, for some so they can have a path to righteousness. But uh, there's a critical mass of mouths that, that didn't exist back when I was, uh, you know, in the restaurant business. And, and when you have all of these people to form a community, you can do all sorts of things that you could never have imagined doing without that critical mass. And, you know, the, the greatest thing about today's psalms is that they don't really consider themselves to be psalms. I mean, they are in name, but they're more than that. They're so much more than that. They're teachers. They're, uh, they're, they're students. They're they're, 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 they're patrons, they are chefs, they are uh, passionate, they're winemakers, they're doing so many different things in so many different ways, and, and, and what they're doing is creating this irresistible enthusiasm for wine 
in the proper context, and the context is your life, no matter what you're doing. You don't have to be uh, a, a, a formal student of wine and food. It's just, it, I just, I love that you go to so many restaurants, no matter where you are now in New York, for that matter, all over the United States. You go to any place where people take food seriously, and you'll find interesting things happening with wine and wine. When I was down in, in, in Miami, uh, Allegra Angelo's the wine director for 50 Eggs that has Yardbird, and they just opened up a Thai restaurant, a fantastic Thai restaurant called Kong River House. And I worked with the chef there, Chef B, to do uh, a, a wine and Thai uh, seminar. And she was uh, working with me, and we did all sparkling wines, five wildly different sparkling wines with all of these great little Thai dishes. And, you know, she's not a Sam in the, the, the formal sense of the term, but she's teaching her staff. She's working with uh, the people that she's buying wine from. She's getting her uh, her her her, her, her uh, 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 employees across the board enthused and of course the customers are going crazy for it she's on a hundred bottle list she's got 30 sparkling wines in this Thai restaurant and it's just off the charts delicious I mean it's crazy I couldn't have imagined that taking place when I was growing up in the business and uh, and she's not you know formally certified but uh, it doesn't matter she, she her in her head she's doing things that you know were you know, unimaginable in my time, but are brilliant right now. And and th- this is the golden era of wine drinking, of of learning about wine, of working in restaurants. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a better time to be doing what we're doing, and especially what you're doing. And it's one of the reasons why I have endless admiration for you, because you're constantly pushing the envelope and doing things. Every one of your businesses uh, is building on the the wisdom of the the prior one. You're standing on your own shoulders. It's very cool. I, I really, I, 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 I have endless admiration for what you're doing, and you haven't even done your best work yet. Uh, I'm t- truly honored that you would say that. Uh, thank, thank you. Um, wow. Uh, I did want to talk about uh, about bestsellers, which um, some of your best work. Um, something that I think a lot of people know you for. Um, the wine retail store that uh, that was really uh, really looked at wine in a different way from the way that most people did at the time. Um, tell us what made you decide to open up that uh, open up that store and tell us all about it. Well, uh, bestsellers was an idea rattling around my head for a number of years. I opened the first store in November of 1996 uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on Lexington between. Uh, uh, 86th and 87th Street, uh, but the idea was born of my experience in restaurants where you have about two minutes to talk to someone about what their palate preferences are, and then you have to play interlocutor and connect what your customers' uh, expressed preferences are with your own wine list and what they're eating and, uh, and, and, and how much they want to spend. Mm-hmm. You sort of perform this calculus and you come up with a bottle that you hope will please them. And I wanted to create a, a store that functioned as a sommelier. Basically, a, a wine list that you could walk through and you would be directed towards a bottle that would have a high likelihood of pleasing you. Now, everybody in the world of... Uh, uh, everybody who drinks wine knows what they like. They may not be able to express that in a, in a, in a highly articulate way or they may not be able to connect to a, a given bottle, but they know what they like. We all know what we like. We know what we like in terms of coffee. We know what we like in terms of cereal and yogurt. And we certainly know what we like in terms of wine. And if you can find a 
way of reducing those expressed preferences to a couple of words and then laying wines out according to those expressed preferences, you can find a way to bridge people's tastes with what's inside a bottle. The problem with wine, the greatest problem with wine, is there's a two-inch piece of tree bark that usually separates you from experiencing it. It's not like going to a cheese counter where you can point and say, I don't know anything about that cheese, but if I try it, I'll tell you thumbs up or thumbs down whether I like it. But when it comes to wine, you've got to rely on somebody else's uh, 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 blessing. Right. And, and so if you were to look at a bottle and said, Domaine Sorol from the Cote Rouenais, people probably won't know what that tastes like. But in your shop, it'll, it'll see, it'll be, there'll be a section that would have said light, juicy reds. Is that kind of the idea? Well, I, 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 I by the way, that's the, the that Cobronese that I had. It's it's uh, Skernik wine, yes. and it's fantastic. And it was just and absolutely. I think that's ins- one of Daniel's selections. Daniel Jones, insanely yeah. delicious. But you know, it, it, here's what I did: the the, the, the stores, bestseller stores, were laid out by taste categories. Eight of them, mm-hmm. simple. You didn't need to have any experience with wine. You didn't need to have a dictionary, a glossary. You just need to needed to look at the fizzy. Fresh, soft, luscious, juicy, smooth, big, and sweet signs, and you would have been directed towards a wine that probably would have pleased you. Fizzy for sparkling wine, fresh for light-bodied whites, soft for medium-bodied whites, luscious for full-bodied whites. We did the same thing for reds. Juicy was light-bodied, smooth, medium-bodied reds, and then big for full-bodied reds, Mm -hmm. and of course sweet was sweet. Anybody can understand that. You add colors to those words and icons that represent those, 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 those words. For big, we had a giant sun. For sweet lollipops. For juicy cherries. And, uh, and, and, and suddenly, the world of wine becomes a multiple choice test instead of an essay question. What are you going to have with chicken or pizza or hamburgers or grilled tuna? And, and everybody loves multiple choice tests. Nobody likes an essay question, you know, because you have a good shot at getting a, a multiple choice uh, question right. And, uh, and that's what I did with bestsellers. It was very simple. I was reductive, but not to the point of dumbing down wine, just to the point where anybody, whether you're an expert or an initiate, would be able to feel comfortable shopping for wine. I agree. And I think that when a Somali is really doing their job, they're making people feel comfortable about indulging and enjoying wine. And it, it seems that, that that shop really did uh, express that. And that that's really, really cool. And you, you don't get that when you walk into most retail stores. Well, the other thing that I, I did back in 1996, which I thought was pretty smart and still today I do, um, all the wines when we opened were $10 or less. So the price range was 5 to $10 at retail, which meant that it was an impulse purchase. The whole store was an impulse purchase. You didn't have to calculate, hmm, should I pay a little bit extra? I don't really have that money. I'm not sure if I could afford it. Everything in the store was open to you because everybody could afford a five to ten dollar bottle. We, we raised the the ceiling to fifteen uh, over the course of the years, and now it's sort of bumping at twenty. But you know that it, it, accounting for inflation, it's still five to ten dollars. It's still an impulse purchase, and I firmly believe that you don't need to spend a lot of money to extract a lot of pleasure from a bottle of wine. There's no direct relationship, no linear connection to the amount of money that you spend and the pleasure that you receive. And once you understand that, once you're freed from you know believing that the more you spend the the more you get then you can wander the culinary universe and the, the uh, and, and experience things for what they truly are and decide for yourself what's delicious and what's not yeah what do you think what is the the least expensive most pleasurable wine you've had <laughs> hmm well you know boy the least expensive wine 
I because I, I, in my philosophy that there is there is a bottom there there's a point where the when a wine is so inexpensive that it's there there's something that that's got to be wrong either they're they're doing something terrible to the environment <laughs> there's some like slave labor situation going on like that there's no way that the grapes could be made with any kind of care um at some at some point and i i still haven't determined for myself what i think that point is but um i think that in terms of retail for me maybe 10 dollars now might be the my low point you can't i mean let's face it you know different places that produce uh wine have different economies that will you know impact uh, what a wine's ultimate price will be at retail right now uh argentina is producing some of the greatest values in the world and you can find at retail between seven and ten dollars mm-hmm. some very credible delicious easy to drink wines torrantes uh malbecs blends bonardas you know that are that are just fun to drink and 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 don't cost more than ten dollars and i'm a big fan of bag-in-the-box wines i love this technology that allows you first of all it's green it's brilliant uh mm-hmm. it, it, the wines last i mean how many times have you opened a bottle and you don't finish it and even if you vacuum it or stick it in the fridge the next day it's not going to be quite as good Maybe it'll be two-thirds as good or three-quarters as good, sometimes half as good, but it's not going to be as good. But when you get into a, a box wine and better and better wines are being put into boxes, you, know, you can tap that thing. And th- those wines will last 30, 45, 60 days. It's a fantastic. And, and, and I'm completely enamored of it. I think it's, it's absolutely part of our future. And because you're saving money by putting it into a, 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 a plastic bladder rather than a glass bottle – and then you, you don't have to ship it, you know, uh, at least incur the charges for shipping something that's heavy. You can build that savings into the price. And then you know, the equivalent of 6 $7 a bottle in a box, uh, good wines in there. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant wines. Um, that That is such a good point, you know. Uh, I, I think there, there's still an image issue with bag-in-the-box wines that, that people probably will, will take a little while to, to get over. But once it's in your glass, you can't tell anymore. <laughs> what, you, <laughs> you can't, you know, like, I mean, well, well Jenny and Francois, you know, the, 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 the importers of, uh, of natural wines, biodynamic, organic, they just came out with, it, it's, it's a, it's a bag-in-a-box, but it's truly a box. It's a wooden box. It's super cool. And they, the, the white, I think, comes from the, the Paydoc. Mm-hmm. But they have a red, a Cote de Rhone in there, which is a completely delicious wine. I mean, it's just fantastic. I would take that anywhere. That's a wine that you could take to uh, a, a psalm party and give people glasses of and you know, not be uh, in any way ashamed of what's, what's going into people's mouths. I mean, fantastic wines. That's, I mean, that, that's really exciting. Uh, there, there's a new technology that's a little bit higher end than, than that uh, called Coravon. I don't know if you've seen this yet. But I haven't. It, uh, it, it basically replicates the, the large system where people would put a, a, a bottle in, uh, into one of these or the enomatic systems and uh, you could pour out one glass and it puts the argon gas in it and it keeps it for days and days and days or months even uh, this you it's actually uh, you put it on top of the bottle uh, it's very cool you put it on top of the bottle you can pour out one glass it it caps it up 
and then uh, you can keep that for for months. And that's a very cool technology that I, that I just uh, that's was genius. To. You know, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do that are very smart in order to save wine, and that sounds like the smartest. But I tell people when, if let's say you're going away, you know, you open up a bottle and then you're leaving for the weekend, you don't want to to lose the bottle. Pour it into an ice cube tray, freeze the wine, and then take it out of the ice cube tray and put it into a, a freezer bag. And the next time you, you need to cook with wine, you pull out ice cubes from there, and you don't have to open up a bottle just to get a cup to go into your coco vin or whatever you're making. And uh, the wine's perfectly intact. Have, have you ever frozen wine and then thawed it out? It actually will, 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 will not diminish it as much as you, you might imagine. That's it, brilliant. That's, it, I haven't thought. And, you know, I've been... Uh, I've actually been revi- like, doing a little bit more cooking at home with, with my girlfriend, and, and we're, we're doing these old Julia Child recipes. We made buff bourguignonia last weekend. Oh, you made a buff bourguignonia? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's extraordinary. You know, I really like to take the cubes of meat and sear them a little bit before I put them in the pot. It makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> That's, uh, she channels. That, I channel her every now. That and was impressive. <laughs> that was truly, truly impressive. <laughs> uh, I'm totally going to use that that ice cube trick. Uh, but Josh West, where where can we find you next? Speaking, uh, where if if our listeners want to come see you and. Where can we find you next? What are you up to next? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of interesting things now. Uh, I'm picking the wines for JetBlue. That's a blast. That's They're right. low-fare sommelier. I mean, the cheapest date in the year. You know, it's... <laughs> it's Yet another reason to fly JetBlue. <laughs> I love JetBlue. I wish I could fly them everywhere. Here's the dark secret about JetBlue. You know, the snacks are free. Yeah. But if you go to a bodega and you see how much, you know, Terra Blue chips are, they're about two bucks a bag. So if you stuff enough into your, like, carry-on, you can actually make money. You can have a net profit flying on JetBlue. <laughs> just take all the snacks, stick them in there, you know, and you'll be fine. But um, in, in point of fact, it's been fun for me to, to, to play with them because we're very simpatico in terms of the way we look at wine and life and, and value. We want to exceed people's expectations, take a commodity and decommodify it in the process, giving it some added value that's unique. Um, I'm working with Fairway now, doing really cool things with their wine shops, uh, in Pelham Manor and Stanford and, and out in Woodland Park, New Jersey, and pairing wines and foods with lots of things. I mean, it's just, Fairway's just a lot of fun. It's, to me, it's a kid in a candy store. I just, I, I love them and I love their food. I love working with them. I'm going to be opening up a restaurant uh, in 2013 called, called Slider Bar where I'm repurposing um, uh, little sandwiches, artisanal sandwiches, sort of taking, you know, uh, these virtuously sourced ingredients and turning them into wickedly delicious little bites. Uh, you know? Everyone loves a sandwich. I, I think that if everyone realized that every culture pretty much has a sandwich, we'd, we could all be friends. Because yeah. we, we all do. We can all come together, except for the gluten-free people. But uh, we can all come together around the fact that we all do truly love sandwiches. This is a brilliant idea. Well, we're going to have gluten-free buns, so we're not going to uh, leave anybody out of the big tent. Yes, all-inclusive. And Michelle Nishan is my chef, you know, and it's just it's, the food is insanely good. We're, we're looking for space now. I think we'll be open in about six months, and it being February, so you're going to do the math on, on when we might be, uh, be opening. We're probably going to do two in 2013. We're hoping to. And we want to do what Meatball Shop did for meatballs. You know, meatballs are ubiquitous. They took this simple food and they repurposed it to a higher level of deliciousness. No reason why you can't do that with Little Sammy's, you know. 
I ate a meatball shop last night. <laughs> they, I wish they had better wine. You know, that's the one thing. You know, you know what? They uh, are Pepe Valtellina Rosso, sixty two dollars, two thousand nine on the list. Really? And uh, they had Crochet Lucien Crochet Sancerre for like forty eight bucks. Well, they finally jacked it up because they when they opened, they didn't have this those good true. ones. In there. I, well, I sent Michael a text. Nice job. Excellent. Anyway, Josh Weston, thank you so much. It's been a blast chatting with you as always. Uh, I look forward to to seeing you soon and uh, look out for Cider Bar in the fall. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>